welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 30, recorded on December 3rd, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you again. And now that you're a Bitcoin investor, I feel like we should start this week with a little Bitcoin news. The open source money has reached $11,000 as we record this episode. Yeah, the big news was 10000 but it's been pretty volatile since then. I've seen it down as low as, I think, just under 9 and up nearly 12 but yeah, kind of 10 or 11 That is big news, though. It's a psychological barrier, isn't it, to get over 10 And people mm. have gone crazy as a result. Even I have sold my Litecoin, and by Litecoin, I mean <laughs> singular Litecoin, <laughs> and now I've got like 0.0-something <laughs> Bitcoin. Yes, it's still worth like £500, though. Yeah, those of us who have been following the Bitcoin phenomenon now for years know that right now there is just an incredible level of transaction volume. As we record this episode, the value of Bitcoin is changing faster than I could read it to you. It is, it's really something to see it. It's its a new level of, of uh, adoption for Bitcoin when it reaches this $10,000, this big number. It's, it's so much more than Bitcoin. It's a validation of the blockchain technology because what it is saying is that all of these millions of people are willing to store their value in a blockchain technology, which, by the way, is open source and a lot of companies are trying to crack that particular nut right now. You do realize that it jumped the shark this week, of course, though, because it was on the Big Bang Theory. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was pretty funny. They must have filmed it several months ago because they were like, it's, it's worth over $5,000. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, ish, this is all sort of fluctuating as we record, but it's around a market value of $180 billion right now, <laughs> which is a substantial amount more than, say, General Electric, just as a reference point. Yeah. It's bigger than some countries, isn't it? It is indeed. And so you, you might, if you're not, a, if you haven't followed Bitcoin very closely, or if you're even a little skeptical, you might be wondering, has, has people just completely lost their mind? And uh, perhaps, perhaps, but I think what you're seeing here is a validation in a couple of fundamental factors, a validation in a currency that is verified via crypto. That's a pretty big winner for Bitcoin. And then a currency that has a shared public ledger where everything is committed and that it is, it is permanently committed. And these two technologies coming together, all being open source out in the public, break down national barriers. So it's 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 a bigger thing than it is in, say, the U.S. or any of the Western countries. Because in the Western countries, we have a pretty stable currency. We generally have governments that uh, are, are considered fairly stable. And their currencies, in my, particularly in my case, their currencies are accepted all over the world. Cash is great. Everybody loves cash. The businessmen to the terrorists, they all love using cash. So when you're in the U.S., you look at this and you go, what is going on with this Bitcoin stuff? This is crazy. But when you're in China, when you're in Iran, when you're somewhere in like Yemen, it's a completely different story. And they have a complete, completely different perspective. And that's going to continue to be the case for Bitcoin for a long time. We're at the very beginning here. This stuff, like the, like the, the currency aspect of it, is just the tip of the iceberg. Well, I know that we're not quite at the end of the year yet, so we're not quite at predictions, but this time next year, where do you see it being? I know that you're you're very reluctant to be pressed on this, but do you think that it's going to be anywhere near where it is now, or is it going to be way more or way less? Hmm. 
Well, I'll give you my my framework that I use to think about it. I don't know if I'm going to be right or not, but my framework is this. If we thought it was worth $100 and then we thought it was worth $500 and then people were willing to buy it at $1,000 and then all of a sudden $5,000 and now $10,000, then what stops us from thinking it's worth $15,000? What stops us from thinking it's worth $20,000, $25,000, $50,000? I don't know where it goes. It's a limited commodity, and there's a lot of use cases from crime to legitimate trust transactions with Bitcoin. I I got to think that there's going to be um, a drop. There generally is. Generally, these rides come with a lot of falls. That tends to be Bitcoin's history. So it's pretty hard to pin where it's going to be at. But it could become a new normal. 10,000 could become a new normal, just like 7,000 became a new normal and 5,000 became a new normal. We'll see. Right. I'll take that as 100,000 then. It may be. I hope so. <laughs> the, the way I see it, that this time next year, it's either going to be worth a hundred thousand or under a hundred. And how ridiculous is that? That that's how volatile it is as yeah. a currency. Yeah, that's true. You know what's been surprising to me, and something I really didn't expect, is as it's gotten closer to ten thousand, more normal people have all of a sudden gotten really interested. Like they've. People that were never taking Bitcoin seriously are all of a sudden investing in Bitcoin because you don't have to buy one $10,000 coin. You can buy fractions of a Bitcoin. You can just buy in little itty bitsy tiny bits. And this idea seems to be really taking off in more well-to-do upper middle class Americans right now. And I'm very surprised by it. And I started to see it within some of some members of my family, but I'm seeing it way, way more in people that are sending me emails asking about it. It's all of a sudden gotten a level of legitimacy. And in my world, when it reached a thousand dollars, I said to myself, I don't know if I'm ever gonna I will never buy a Bitcoin again. Maybe I'll try to mine an alt crypto. But I'm never going to buy a Bitcoin. $1,000? No way. But for a different category of investor, if you want to call them that, $10,000 is all of a sudden bringing a level of legitimacy to it that has turned their interest in, which I did not see coming. So it's really hard to peg this stuff. Yeah. And what about the forks then, like Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold? They are not doing as well as they had hoped, but they haven't damaged Bitcoin at all. In fact, they've almost um, legitimized it. Yeah, the thing about Bitcoin that is hard to understand is what gives it value is the fact that we're willing to give it value. And I think that means original Bitcoin will always have the most value because that's the thing collectively we've all decided to give value. The only reason gold has value is because it can be applied to many industrial applications and we've all decided that this shiny rock is valuable. To bring it to more current terms, the only reason the dollar has any value is because it's something we all agree has value and the federal government accepts it to pay taxes. But it's just – it's something we've all collectively agreed upon. If tomorrow President Trump declared that we'd all have to use the Trumpian to pay our taxes and pay for goods and buy gas and groceries, the market would pretty quickly switch over to Trumpians. Yeah, that's not even that far-fetched, is it? <laughs> Some of the stuff he does. <laughs> Yeah, well, it remains to be seen exactly where it's going to go, but I was quite skeptical in the past. I've called it a Ponzi scheme. I'm not saying it's definitely not a Ponzi scheme, but I think that its value is going to grow. And seeing $100,000 within a year or two, I don't think is out of the question. I think when you wrap your head around the value that the blockchain brings, in short, it's two parties that don't trust each other can use the blockchain to have a verified transaction. 
that has applications across industry from individual to individual. It could be huge. And once big business fully wraps its head around that, IBM, the Linux Foundation, banks, they're all working on that right now. And that could be the subtext to why Bitcoin has so much value, is the fundamental technology it's based on. Big business is trying to build a new product here. And speaking of big business, there's some big business news too. Yeah, so Red Hat, Facebook, Google, and IBM have all got together to announce the Common Cure rights commitment, which is very, very similar to what we heard from the Linux kernel contributors and copyright holders, and their assertion that they will, instead of suing people who violate the GPL v2, they'll do their best to bring them into compliance and actually release the code and go down that route rather than the litigious one. Anybody making the code will tell you that suing companies fails all the time. They just go into a defensive posture. They shut down their contributions to open source and they say, oh, lesson learned. We're not doing that again. Oh, that was a mistake. But when you work with them and you inspire a culture within to contribute to open source, not because they legally have to, but because it is beneficial for their development cycle and their company and their end product, you actually get a full-fledged participant in open source, which is really what we want. That's what these signing statements are about at the core of them. What Red Hat has done here is they've created something that just about any company could take and apply it to their own GPL code. It's sort of this perfect little pre-made template that lets you put in your own company name and your own couple of disclosures. You take it off the blog and boom, you now have your own signing statement. And that's exactly what Facebook and IBM and Google have done. If you go to their blogs right now, they've taken the text the Red Hat Legal has created and they've just adapted it for their companies and it added a few definitions. Like in the case of Google, they define a couple of the terms. One of those is they do say, we're going to warn you. We're going to tell you you're screwing up and that there may be legal action in the future. That doesn't mean we're suing you. That just lets you know that we're beginning the process and there does need to be a corrective action. And they define how that's going to look and give these companies predictability. So businesses and enterprises that are incorporating open source software have predictability. And that's what companies are looking for. This is very much the corporate side of all this, isn't it? It's all open source, never a mention of free software in any of this. Yeah, but this is all of the legalese that is necessary to get more Linux and more open source shipping in products, in consumer products. Yeah, definitely. It's something that I think has been long overdue, really, because a lot of companies have been a bit reluctant because they are worried about getting sued because there have been some very litigious people within the FOSS yeah. world. Yeah. And now we've got a situation where a lot of the big companies and the big hitters are getting together and saying, look, we're not interested in suing, we're interested in compliance. And yeah. that, to me, is how it should be. I'd like to know from the audience, they can give us some feedback, linuxactionnews.com slash contact, or tweet us at linuxactionnews or YouTube comment. Does this take some of the wind out of the BSD and Apache licenses? Obviously, just some of the wind. There's still lots of legitimate reasons to use those licenses. But now as a corporation, with these signing statements coming along, is there less risk? Well, speaking of the kernel, there's been some clarification recently with regards to the LTS kernel. And we got it wrong, didn't we? We, along with a lot of other news sites and commentators in the Linux world, had incorrectly assumed that the 4.14 LTS kernel was going to be supported for six years. And 
now we know that is not the case. Yeah, we thought the LTS development cycle was shifting to six years for all kernel releases that were deemed LTS. Not true. They're going to be two years. So kernel 4.14, as of right now, is going to be supported for two years. And that's kind of confusing. What it means is Greg KH is responsible for LTS kernels, some of which get six years, some of which get two years, and you'd be forgiven for not necessarily knowing where the deciding line is because that's that's in Mountain View at Google's <laughs> headquarters. They decide which kernels are going to get the six-year LTS, and then we just do two years as a community, or Greg does, as default beyond that. That appears to be my take from the outside is that essentially Google or, or some company that probably ships a lot of Linux kernels is going to come to the maintainers and say, please, please make this one an LTS kernel for six years. We're going to have lots of hardware OEMs and system-on-a-chip manufacturers targeting this. Please, sir, please make this one a six-year. And then Greg on his empire of Linux kernels will go, yes, I have decided that that kernel shall too be six years, and then there will be an announcement about it. But by default, all other LTS kernels, two years. Well, while it is our fault for getting this wrong, you do have to wonder, could it have been communicated a little bit more clearly from the kernel team? Yeah, I think people have been mistaking this since the announcement of Project Treble for Android. That's kind of where this began to work its way in. Either way, you're right. It's our, it's our bad. And uh, we always try to follow up when we learn a correction. We'll always try to include it in the show or put a link in the show notes. DigitalOcean.com. Go create an account and then use our promo code. Here's the thing. It's a way to create infrastructure on demand using the Linux distribution that you choose. Ubuntu, Fedora, whatever you like. I'm not going to judge. And you can get started in less than 55 seconds. Everything you deploy, if it's the low end, like two cents an hour rig, up to the big ones with hundreds of gigs of RAM, is going to have SSD storage. And then you can add and upgrade as you need. You can deploy entire application stacks. Say NextCloud. The entire thing or just the base operating system and build it yourself however you like to do it a very straightforward pricing very fast networking 40 gigabits into the hypervisors of course those hypervisors run linux kvm for the virtualizers and then an amazing dashboard a dashboard for days whether you're an expert or rather you if you're just a beginner you're gonna love the dashboard it works really great and then when you're ready to automate things they have an api that's simple intuitive and easy to understand with lots of open source code already written to take advantage of it. And while you're there, go to DigitalOcean.com, create your account, use the promo code, here's the thing, and then go to the community section. You know that Docker thing, right? Well, how do you actually get that installed and configure it? They got a guide. DigitalOcean.com, create your account, promo code, here's the thing, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Action News. So, Chris, I know you've had a lot of problems with GNOME and you've had a lot of distro hopping in the studio lately. Well, hop no more, sir. Have I got the distro for you? And that is the Raspberry Pi desktop based on Debian Stretch Raspbian. Really? Now I can run it on my x86, eh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> PCs and Macs. Yeah, that's, that's just <laughs> so exciting. In fact, they actually specifically mentioned Macs. They say, today we're launching the first Debian stretch release of the Raspberry Pi desktop for PCs and Macs. And we're also releasing the latest version of Raspbian stretch for your Pi. Yeah. So have you tried this out on x86 hardware? 
You know, I, I, I was almost going to. And then I read that they're using the LXDE desktop still in 2017. Yeah. And to be honest with you, Joe, I thought, I like some of the modifications they're making, but it's obviously not designed for me. And I didn't want to come away with a bad taste in my mouth. Well, I downloaded it and I installed it, but then it wouldn't boot. So that kind of sucked. But then I booted it again and went into the live session and that worked perfectly. Hmm. So I don't know quite what was going on there. And my touchpad didn't work in the graphical installer. So I don't know. But anyway, let's let's gloss over those bad points. And if you want to have an experience on a laptop or desktop computer that is identical to that of a Pi using the official Raspbian distro, then look no further. And this doesn't make sense to almost anyone listening to our show, I don't think. Because as you say, it's using this old LXDE desktop. Wayland is not even something they're thinking about. They're looking for just pure stability, something that works and has been working for a long time. And so where this is aimed is educators, teachers, parents, Raspberry Pi enthusiasts who want to have feature parity between their Pi and a desktop or laptop computer. And if you look at it from that angle, it suddenly makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I suppose, uh, in an ideal world. So let's let's back up one little bit. So it is a little different. The x86 version is a bit different than the Raspberry Pi version in that it, it lacks Mathematica, but it includes two applications that the ARM version does not have and I think give you an indication of where they're going. Number one is Pi Server. This allows you to set up an operating system, such as Raspbian, on the PC, which can then be shared by a number of Pi clients networked to it. It's intended to make it easy for classrooms to have multiple Pis all running exactly the same software, and for the teacher to have control over how the software is installed and used. Yeah, you can imagine this as all the Pis plugged into a switch, all on the same network, all the Pis are set to boot from the network, and then you can just manage it all from one central location rather than having to mess around with SD cards and cloning them and DD and or whatever. That makes a lot of sense to me. And to have it as an application, okay, maybe that should just be a standalone application that you can run on Windows or Linux. But, well, this is a start. At least you can boot into this Raspberry Pi desktop, which uh, they've dropped the Pixel branding. I think we've talked about that in the right. past. Let's just gloss over that one. <laughs> they learned from that mistake. But it, it seems to me that for its niche, this makes a lot of sense. Maybe. So the other second application they've added is, which is a great idea, I think, an application which allows you on the x86 version to easily use the GPIO pins of a Raspberry Pi Zero connected via USB to a PC in an application using Stretch or Python. These things make sense. I want to back up, though, for a moment and tell you where I think perhaps I I smell some, some missteps. Um, so first... I feel like they're not being completely genuine with the audience. Now, I'm not a I'm not a big Raspberry Pi insider. I don't really follow it super closely. But when I read this, it reads smarmy to me. And, and that comes across as deception. So I'll read the paragraph for you. When we released our custom desktop environment on Debian for PCs and Macs last year, we were slightly taken aback by how popular it turned out to be. We really only created it as a result of one of these wouldn't-it-be-cool-if conversations we sometimes have in the office. So we were delighted by the Pi community's reaction, seeing how keen people were 
on the x86 version, we've decided that we're going to try to keep releasing it alongside Raspbian, the ultimate aim to make simultaneous releases of both. Now, the reason I don't like this is because it reads like this. We just happened to make an x86 version. And then it just happened to be popular. And so we just happened to spend hundreds of hours of time creating the Pi server to enable a total thin client environment around the Raspberry Pi. We just happened to create a software middle layer that will map GPIO pins on a USB-attached Raspberry Pi Zero to a Python application you're developing on a Linux desktop. Oops, just happened to do that. And so here it is, everybody, and now we're going we're gonna to alter our entire development scope to match these two releases up and synchronize their releases. We just hap- that just happened. It just, it, just, it just happened. And that reads as disingenuous to me. I, I don't disagree with them releasing on x86 and completing a product and making a development environment where you can use a larger, powerful PC for applications that you might run on a Pi. That seems like a great idea, too. But their messaging comes across as disingenuous. This feels like a part of a larger plan, a bigger strategy, but they don't know how to message it to the open source community. Just like they didn't know how to message the Pixel desktop, they're not messaging this correctly. And if you look at their approach around using LXDE, that's the second red flag. Now, no disrespect to LXDE. I love me a lightweight, efficient Linux desktop that works for your workflow. That's awesome. But when asked about it, Simon Long says we've invested a lot of time and effort into LXD-based solutions and see no reason to change. It works well for what we require. So then a commenter named Mike says, well, what about Whalen and Weston? LXD seems to be dead, like a dead end to me. Simon replies, Simon, again, involved in all of this, replies, LXDE is a mature, working, stable desktop environment, which does everything we need it to. This notion of dead ends is not one into which I subscribe to, as if as if software being end of life is a theory that one can subscribe to or not. So that's red flag number one. And then the second part is, we investigated Wayland seven years ago and decided eh, it didn't go with anything we needed and was too bleeding edge to move to. They go on to say, we'll go on for a while because LXDE does everything we need, essentially, and don't anticipate that being that changing anytime soon. We'll stick with that desktop environment that we spent over three years tweaking, debugging, improving. Newer is not the same as better, certainly not in the world of software. But see, this betrays a fundamental, huge misunderstanding about open source software. Because what people are really saying when they're asking about the future of LXDE is they're saying, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to maintain LXDE on X all on your own? What are you, are you going to maintain Xorg and LXDE one day all on your own? Are you going to run a Raspbian fork of that desktop when the rest of the open source community is developing other solutions and moving towards Wayland? Are you going to go at your own just like you're going at your own on these other projects? It doesn't make sense, and it, it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the open source community and what they're even asking for. But hang on, it's all working fine right now, so therefore it's going to work forever, right? <laughs> right, but when you're built, that's great for an end user, right? That's great, great. That is super great for an end user, and that's how it should be. When you're a platform developer, when you're creating a platform for educators, for things that are going to schools for years, for things to students to learn upon, you have to think more than two years down the road. And you have to think about your resources and the people available to develop projects and how much you want to take on as a company yourself or as a foundation. How much in-house development do you want to do? How many software projects do you want? Now you've got an ARM distro and an x86 distro, both of which are now diverging from each other. How much further do you want to go down that path? 
But going back to your other point about education and creating an environment that's on the Pi and the desktop that are similar, I, I do kind of, I, I grok that. That makes sense to me. I'm doubtful that large IT organizations in these school districts are going to standardize on the Raspbian desktop, but I could see it in a few areas. I could see it in some workshops. I could see it in projects at home. And so it does make some sense to me. But there are those red flags there that I can't ignore. Yeah, when you talk about workshops and stuff, they recently released that Makerspace magazine, so it kind of fits in with those smaller organizations, doesn't it? Yeah, and and in that context, I can see it making sense. I hope that they understand that there is a certain point in which you need to just sort of go with the flow of open source. Canonical recently learned that lesson with Unity, and now they're working upstream with GNOME. That ticket will eventually come due for Raspbian, too. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see. Well, let's talk about Mozilla. Now, you are a big fan, Chris, of voice assistants. You use your Amazon thing quite a lot to control things. And I've been skeptical of it. I have no interest in having a box listening to me all the time. But it seems that I'm a bit weird in that sense because this is taking off massively. But the problem is uh, the Alexa thing, uh, Apple's one, Google's one, they're all proprietary and using a proprietary backend. Mozilla have decided to step up and see that this is part of the future, at least, if not the future. And now they've released their open source speech recognition model, which is pretty accurate. It seems that Mozilla are not being left behind on this. They're not doing a Firefox OS and waiting for the the competitors to get way advanced. Maybe they're a little bit behind, but I think that they're far less behind than they were, were before. And it's good to see this. Even though it's something I don't have a massive interest in, I think that it's good that we have Mozilla and who better than Mozilla to pioneer this space in an open source way. Yeah, so for full context here, speech recognition, the back-end real compute aspect to it and all of the data is really locked down to like two, maybe three companies if you want to be generous. And so if you're working on a Mycroft project or even building a point-of-sale kiosk where you want to have voice recognition, you got to work with one of these companies and their incredible prices and their entire closed nature to have any success at all. So we've talked about Project Common Voice in the past. This is the voice and speech data aspect of what Mozilla is working on. And today, today they're talking about Project Deep Speech. Now, Project Deep Speech is the compute and algorithms that actually analyze the data. This is all open source stuff that the Mozilla Foundation's working on, and they're claiming that their speech-to-text engine has an error rate of just 6%. Essentially, on a clean data set, it has the error rate of a human in understanding. And they're making this available to anyone, including all of the data. You can go download all 12 gigs of it right now. And this is the sort of thing that we want to see Mozilla doing, isn't it? Yeah, this is a considerable amount of data they're contributing. I mean, it's just huge, really. It's hard to even state it. And they're just getting started. They're working with English right now, but they're going, and this is from their article, their blog post, they say they're working hard to ensure that Common Voice will support voice donations in multiple languages beginning in the first half of 2018. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that this didn't happen a year or two ago for Mycroft's sake, because maybe they'd be a lot further along had it happened then. So you might be wondering, how does Mozilla afford to do all of this? Well, 
actually, we have a little bit of insights into that. You can read the full article at linuxactionnews.com slash 30, but they've posted their annual report for 2016. And there's a brief here that I want to read because I think it'll help everybody understand how Mozilla works a little better. Mozilla is not your average organization. It was founded as a community open source project in 1998. Mozilla is structured as two organizations. The 501c3 Mozilla Foundation, which backs emerging leaders and mobilizes citizens to create global movement for the health of the internet. <laughs> That's I like that. And then their wholly owned subsidiary, the Mozilla Corporation, which creates products and explores new technologies that gives people more control over their lives and basically makes the Firefox and Thunderbird product, I believe. So you have two organizations, sort of the aspirational foundation and the corporation, which is making the products. And together, they're actually making pretty good money. Even though we've talked a lot about how Chrome and WebKit in general are dominating the web, Mozilla's had a good year. Yeah, thanks, Marissa. Yeah, really. There's some deals that they had in place. I mean, the big part of their revenue undoubtedly comes from search. Going back to Google and integrating their search partnerships, uh, they they earn the bulk of their revenue there. Um, in f- 2015, they earned $414 million from their search deals. And in 2016, they've earned $506 million. They've localized a little more. So it's not just Google across the board. In different regions, they're going with more regional-specific search engines. And here in the States, it's back to Google. Well, I can't wait to see this time next year when we get the 2017 numbers and see quite how much of that Yahoo money plus the new Google money is working out because it's got to be more than this, I would have thought, because they're getting paid twice now for search. You know, you often talk about how they spend their money. I think you probably like this. So the foundation, which is the more aspirational stuff, has about 80 employees and then about 1,000 or more volunteers around the world. 80 employees for the foundation. But the corporation, the one making the products that you and I talk about all the time, 1,000 employees worldwide. 1,000. That's a much bigger investment. The foundation does seem to be more volunteer-driven. So some of these things that come out, some of these initiatives that you hear about from Mozilla, because both of these, the corporation and the foundation, they operate together as Mozilla. So sometimes what you're hearing about is just from a group of 80 people plus a bunch of a bunch of volunteers. But the code that we all use every day is where the real employment and staffing investment is. Kind of reminds me of the, the Raspberry Pi Foundation. They have a similar setup that they've got two very distinct entities, Raspberry Pi Trading, which is what sells all of the pies and makes all the money and then the raspberry pi foundation which is what spends all the money on the various education and outreach stuff and the magazines and everything you know i'll just wrap it up with this my personal thoughts are firefox is stronger than ever uh 57 really did win me over with the exception of just a couple of machines here in the studio all of my machines and my machine at home are now running firefox and it does honestly feel faster and like it puts less load on my linux box than chrome does and that's all it took for me well, I'm still using it. I haven't made the switch just yet. And I also have not made the switch to Sailfish OS, despite Yola's attempts to popularize it. And they've posted an update talking about Sailfish X, which is on the Xperia X, and how that seems to be going well for them. And also, they seem to be jumping on the blockchain bandwagon. Yeah, so this is the six-week checkup. Can you believe it has been six weeks since we talked about Sailfish X and all of that? And they say it's gone well, Joe, and they're expanding the program. They're going to focus on new Sony Xperia hardware in 2018, and they're going all in, like you said, on blockchain. They're working with a company called 
Zipper Global Limited, which is a blockchain specialized company. Um, they work with Ethereum products. Uh, that's There's your translation. And they're going to develop the world's first blockchain solutions on top of an open mobile operating system. These all sound like really big goals, like big things. And they back it up. They say the program is going to be utilizing Sailfish X as a development platform and targets to offer the world's best open source development environment for the rapidly expanding developer community of blockchain application developers. That's a lot of buzzwords in blockchain and developers, Joe. <laughs> it's like a soup right there. Well, yeah, it used to be that you'd go into a VC meeting, mention VR, and they'd just throw money at you. Now the key word is blockchain, and they throw money at you. Yeah. And that's what this feels like. I, I can't see anything concrete at all here. I can see a lot of buzzwords and a lot of what looks like vaporware, but I just don't really see anything concrete and any details on how this is actually going to work. Did I miss something here? I tend to agree. I think there's a couple of ideas in here that if you had a company that had some real scale and some real user base might actually gain traction. And it seems easy enough. You just create your own crypto coin. The platform will have its own currency. It's called Zip. And it's going to fuel the community and platform development. They're going to have like an incentive for the users too. So it's not just going to be for developers. And uh, as you create applications or give feedback or submit bug fixes, you could get zip currency. And then maybe this zip currency could be converted into something that actually matters. I don't know. But that idea might actually have something to it if you're a large, say you're a Samsung Say you're a Google. If you're an o you're a large open source project, and you could just go fork Litecoin and and call it Joe Coin, and then all of a sudden everybody who's contributing to Project Joe gets a little bit of Joe Coin. You just need one exchange to convert that to Bitcoin, and well, Bob's your uncle. You now got yourself a cryptocurrency. Yeah, I suppose it just feels like an ICO, an initial coin offering. To yeah, me. yeah, it's a way to generate hype and value on a platform that otherwise wouldn't have it. Yeah. It's just think that this week, especially with Bitcoin, as we said at the top of the show, top in 10,000, it just seems an awfully convenient time to announce this, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it is our job to be skeptical and look at these things from an objective position. But if something de interesting develops here or another open source project takes this idea and runs with it, we might just be the very first place to tell you about it. In fact, you can get every single episode every week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And you can support the whole network at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Thank you.